one has to be proactive to seek out opportunities. They don't fall into your lap. But when you have individuals who are willing to be there for you, when you are looking for that advice, that's the best thing that can happen to you. Welcome back to NGB Ideas, a podcast about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. Hi, I'm Jim Wilson. Thanks for joining us. The Canadian life sciences community has a long and growing list of servant leaders who are personable, incredibly talented, and driven to succeed. And our guest today is at the top of that list. Bettina Hamelin is president and CEO of Ontario Genomics, and her story is inspiring on many levels. Bettina leads by example, helps whenever called upon, and steers the ship at one of the key organizations in Canada's life sciences sector. I know you're going to enjoy our conversation today. Before we get there, we'd like to thank the TMX Group and the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation for their support. We would also like to thank our growing list of sponsors that includes Admari Bio Innovations, Omnia Bio, Bay Area Health Trust, Eurofins CDMO Alfora, Nova Nordisk, and Lab Occupier. Bettina, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Welcome to NGB Ideas. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I look forward to our conversation. Oh, likewise. You were born in Mannheim in southwestern Germany. I've never been there. Could you tell us about the city? What's it like? Mannheim is a rather industrial city, and it is next to another city that is called Ludwigshafen, where BASF is situated, and that's the world's largest chemical company. The whole area is imprinted by the history and the sheer size of BASF. It's very industrial, but it's also very close to beautiful wine country. I got a taste of both of those things. My wife's a big fan of Riesling. Did you live right in Mannheim or were you in the suburbs? Definitely grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in a small town called Prattenthal, which was the sleeping city to folks working at BASF. My father was a chemist at BASF. We lived close, but not directly in the city. I read that both of your parents were chemists, correct? That is correct. Was your mother also employed as a chemist? This was a completely different time. Women at the time, if they could go to university and get an advanced degree, that was a major accomplishment. But they would do it without any hopes to be hired by a company. BASF at the time did not hire women other than secretaries but not into chemistry, physics, engineering, etc. I'm sure some of our younger listeners just went, pardon? What decade was this? This would have been in the 50s and 60s. My parents got married in 1959, and my dad would have started working in that year or perhaps the year before. The industry that you have made a career in did not welcome women at that time. Regardless, I was raised without consciousness about that. It was just the way. Mom stayed at home, dad's work. I also read that your mother conducted chemistry experiments in your house. She transferred her curiosity and her desire to experiment to the kitchen. She was a wonderful cook. 
all our guests got a taste of it because she usually tried something new when we invited people to the house. So she wasn't blowing things up. No, she wasn't blowing things up. Common sense always prevailed in the end. While she enjoyed that, I know in hindsight how hard it was for her to not be able to have a career. I'm so sorry to hear that. I also read that when you were growing up, the interests in your household were science, culture, history, and music. It sounds like your home was a very interesting environment. It was definitely an intellectual type childhood. My dad, he always brought home really interesting science-related books that he would access through the BASF library. He would bring home these kits of physics and chemistry experiments. And our Sunday afternoon was sit down with dad, who led us through these experiments in a very professorial manner. I have fantastic memories of building a real-functioning little steam engine. Really? <laughs> yeah. That was just a lot of fun. Were your grandparents living nearby? They were a short car drive away, and my grandparents had a big influence. My grandfather came from a dynasty of teachers. This is like early 20th century for the younger listeners of this podcast. He would be the teacher in a small town. He would teach all grades from grade one to grade 13. And he would be expected to play the organ in church on Sunday and conduct the choir. I have these memories of him being at the organ and he would pedal with his feet and he would play the violin to accompany the choir. And my grandmother was an incredible pianist. Memories I have is where my grandparents sit at the piano and they play with four hands on the same piano incredible music. That's really where I started to insist. I was little. I was four or five years old. I wanted to play the piano and I wanted to play the violin. And first my dad was sighing because it's like this extra thing to do, but I insisted and I never regretted it. What instruments did you play and do you play? Violin is my main instrument. I also play the viola. I play piano, recorder, all sizes, the flute, and I've tried trumpet and all kinds of things. But those were the instruments that I played. I read that while you were doing your postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Kentucky, you were first violinist with the Lexington Harmonic Orchestra. Is that true? Wherever I lived and studied, I would play in the Philharmonic Orchestra. That's really how I supported my studies. I have to say, I'm feeling pretty inadequate at the moment. I'll get over it. In light of your interest in music and the arts, is it safe to say that sports was not your thing growing up? Or did you also play sports? I would have loved it. I mean, now I do lots of sports, biking, walking, hiking. My husband and I and my boys, when they're around, we're out in nature being active. It was just not a thing. You know, boys were playing soccer. Girls were not playing soccer. Did you ever think that music might have been your calling? I did. It was a very hard, heart-wrenching decision between science and music. You know, I had a talent for music. I could pick up any instrument and I would excel at it. I could pick up any sheet music and play from the sheet directly. I could be in a chamber ensemble. I could be in an orchestra. I could be the soloist. I loved all of those things. I became a bit of a known entity regionally where I grew up. There was a time when I thought this is my career. 
And as you say, that must have been a very difficult decision, but I'm thinking it's worked out pretty well. So we're going to go down that path. So your father was a chemist, and you mentioned he worked at BASF. If I understand correctly, he worked in a lab and was probably at that time behind closed doors, probably in a bit of a cloistered environment. His work didn't really have him engaging, I'm assuming, in the local community. Do you think maybe his work experience left an impression, perhaps negative, on you when you were growing up about what life as a chemist was all about? I saw my dad leaving in the morning, 6.30 a.m., and he would drive to work. It was all behind closed doors. Chemical industry smelled. He would come back at 8 o'clock in the evening, exhausted, not really wanting to talk about what he was doing. Do you think you're more like your father or your mother? Definitely more like my dad. We both loved sciences and music, and we spent all of our free time playing music with our friends during my childhood, mostly together. He taught me discipline, well, both of my parents did, and he definitely taught me how to listen to others. You cannot play music and be in tune with your partners without listening to them. And then also not being shy and come forward when it was time for my solo. Definitely learned a lot from him and had a great relationship with him. That's got to be a whole bunch of special memories. I'm jealous. If I may, I'd like to talk about the rest of your family. You have an older sister. She's two years older? Yes. And are you carbon copies of one another in spite of the age? What is she like? We're polar opposite because of choices we have made in life. And personality-wise, we're very different. I would characterize my sister more as a traditionalist. She's a pillar of her family and was a pillar to my parents because I left several decades ago, whereas I'm more adventure-seeking, opportunity-seeking, and so we have very different approaches to life. Do you have a favorite memory of growing up in Germany? One of the family traditions that I really have missed is that in the area I grew up in May would be the time for white asparagus. All you see in the market is mountains of white asparagus. And it lasts about three weeks. It happens at the same time as strawberries. One of my memories is when the whole family got together and it would rotate between different family members. The meal would be a mountain of white asparagus with pancakes and ham and lots of butter. And then a strawberry cake was a dessert. Just have wonderful memories about the family coming together and everybody in the kitchen peeling. Well, everybody, all the girls in the kitchen peeling. <laughs> yeah. Peeling the white asparagus and chatting and just being together. That was just a wonderful memory. And I miss white asparagus. They're so hard to find here. If I see it, I'll let you know. Having never lived in Germany myself, I'm not familiar with the school system, but I assume it's similar to what we have in Canada with elementary school and high school. And I'm wondering what high school was like for you growing up. I'm just guessing that you were one of those kids that focused on grades. Good guess. High school was interesting. I was actually the first year where the class was met. So elementary school, we were in the same school, but boys on one side, girls on the other side. I'm also a baby boomer. There were 50 or 60 kids. But when we went to high school, now the classroom was mixed. That was very interesting because I'm a teenager. 
I loved school. I was quite academically driven. I was not number one. I was the number two student in the entire house. It was big high school. I'm so curiosity driven and it wasn't particularly hard for me. So it sounds like high school was a period of your life that you look back on fondly. It was a really great time. Great friendships. I still am in touch with my very best friend. The tough thing at the end was, what am I going to do? There is this expectations of university, study, you get degrees. And I'm like, I don't love playing the violin. So it was really hard at the end because I didn't quite know what to do with myself. I get that languages and science and math and music were mainstays in your household. I read that in high school you were not a fan of physics. What about physics rubbed you the wrong way, Bettina? I just would not wrap my head around electrons and protons and positive and the negative current, like stuff that you can't see. I couldn't wrap my head around. There's an irony in that statement that I'm not going there. Was English spoken in your household when you were growing up or was it just German? It was just German. The German high school system is different to the North American, or at least what I've seen my boys in part of their school in Quebec and then part of their school in BC. There was a lot more emphasis on languages. I had English in grade five, French in grade seven, Latin and Greek in grade eight. And that was just part of the curriculum. It gave me the basis that then allowed me to learn the language faster when I came to the United States and to Quebec later on. Hi, Jim here. Before we get back to the show, we want to remind our listeners this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. This is an in-person event that is taking place at the Hamilton Convention Center on the first Monday in October. If you want to meet today's leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community and hear what they're doing and where they think we're heading, this is an event you should consider attending. For more details and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. So you graduated from high school, you had to make this decision in music or science, and you went to the University of Heidelberg and focused on pharmacy. Is that correct? That's correct. There was a little bit of a period in between where I was struggling a bit, trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life? What do I really want and what do I really like? I ended up in pharmacy because it combined the chemistry that I loved and working with people. That was the image that I had of pharmacy. And back then, there was no internet. The knowledge about career choices and what that might represent came from your parents, from your family. We didn't have career advisors in school. Like, that didn't exist. Or you went to the library and you tried to find a book about what does a pharmacist do? I think that brought the choices of the professionals that you would see. For example, you go to the pharmacy, you buy a drug, you see what these individuals do. That's where the knowledge came from. And that influenced my career choice. Were the classes small there? Were they large? Would it be something that would be similar to what students today would experience in the Canadian university system? The classes were humongous because baby boomer years, there were just lots of kids around. So there were probably about 500 plus students in the lecture hall. The professor was way down there and 
and then about maybe 70 to 100 kids, depending on the year, would actually make it into the lab. And you had to be in the lab to make it through the semester. It was competitive. And of course, I was always striving to get into the lab. And it was tough, but I also have great memories. Everybody is struggling and everybody is stressed out. And you end up with this group of highly motivated students that you study with and work with and then go through the system together with. But the whole culture of learning was very different. Year one was organic chemistry. I remember this humongous book on organic chemistry. And basically the message is last day of the semester, there's going to be an exam and you have to know this book. There were no class notes. There was no scoping of read pages 350 to 400. So it's very different learning, but it really sharpened my reading skills, my learning skills, the skills to decide what's important, what's not important. Working in a team of people, you have to support each other. Somebody reads page 350 to 400, somebody else reads 400 to 450, and then you teach each other. You obtained a scholarship that allowed you to leave the University of Heidelberg and attend the College of Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Could you tell us about how that came about and what that experience was like? Heidelberg had uh, partner universities around the world. At the time, I had fallen madly in love with this American young man. I thought it was all academic. Okay, the truth comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and he had worked in Germany for a couple of years, and he went back home after that, and home was Cincinnati. So I tried to figure out, how am I going to visit him? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. It turned out that Heidelberg had this partnership with two universities in the U.S., University of Kentucky and Lexington and UCSF. And I applied for the scholarship. Of course, I got both. And you looked at the map. Went to the library, got an atlas, <laughs> looked at the map. Where is Kentucky? So it's all based on the academics. I understand completely. Indeed. This was much more of a hard decision than a rational decision. But fortunately, it turned out that the University of Kentucky was one of the top three pharmacy schools in the U.S. And that boded well for my career overall. So you got through university. I'm hopeful that that was a good experience. It sounds like that relationship didn't go down the path that you perhaps were hoping to see at the time, and you ended up getting a degree. I finally ended up getting a degree, but I also got a scholarship in music at the University of Kentucky. Wow. It allowed me to continue to study the violin and play in the Philharmonics while I was getting my pharmacy degree. In 1986, you started a Doctor of Pharmacy degree at the University of Kentucky, and you graduated in 1990 and stayed on to complete a postdoctoral fellowship in pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenetics. And I'm going to pause for a second here, Bettina, because I am absolutely unfamiliar with those fields of study. So I'd appreciate you taking a moment to explain to our listeners, but mostly to me, what it's about. Pharmacokinetics is really all about the science of how our body deals with, absorbs, distributes, biotransforms, and eliminates drugs. This is generally happening by our transporters or enzymes in the kidneys and the liver. And some people do not have the genes that code for the enzymes that are essential for the biotransformation of drugs. And that is what pharmacogenomics is really all about. 
And that really became the focus of my research at the university. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I mentioned earlier that you were the first violinist with the Lexington Philharmonic Orchestra, and you're doing this postdoctoral fellowship, your first violinist. And the thought that comes to my mind, or rather the question is, where do you get your drive? I think also my parents were very motivated, and my dad had an incredible drive because he was also doing all those things. We just have a lot of energy. While you were at the University of Kentucky, you were also part of the International Student Club. What was that club about? That was really a grounds-up initiative from international students at the University of Kentucky to get together and support each other. You have to imagine that you come from Germany to Kentucky. It's a culture shock. It's also a learning a new culture shock. So the club was really about supporting each other, and we've made some incredible friendships. Speaking of culture shocks, I have to admit there's a narrative that's going on in my mind where you grew up playing the violin in Germany. And due respect to Kentucky, I'm sure the Philharmonic is a fabulous orchestra, and it's a great cosmopolitan city, Lexington. But I can't help but think you were playing the violin in Germany and playing the fiddle in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> And I was. And that's a completely unfair, stereotyped comment, and I apologize for it. I actually played the fiddle. We would go into bars with friends, and they played the guitar, I played the fiddle. If you're for hire, I've absolutely got a gig for you. Before we leave the University of Kentucky, something else happened while you were there. You met somebody who wasn't from Cincinnati. He was from Montreal, and guess where I ended up. <laughs> <laughs> I met my now husband there. And what's his name? His name is Richard Hamlin. Was he in the same program or was he in the same orchestra? <laughs> no, he was not in the orchestra, although he met me through a music thing. He was in the faculty of agriculture. He got his PhD in plant pathology at the University of Kentucky. You finished your postdoc in 1992, and I guess it was about this time that you got your first job in academia at the University of Texas in Austin. Could you tell us how that came about? When I finished my postdoc in Kentucky, interestingly, in my mind, we were going to Germany and I was going to get a job there. And I had actually applied and went for interviews and got a job offer at Merck. But hadn't quite communicated that clearly to my husband. He, at the same time, went and interviewed in Quebec City for a job and got a job offer. I then decided to not take the job in Germany and join him in Quebec City. But it was a little bit tough going for me. And I got lots of job offers and decided to accept a job at the University of Texas in Austin. And that's where I started my academic career. And then in August 1994, you became an associate professor at the University of Laval in Quebec. And taking a job at that university suggests to me that you are trilingual. Yes, I am. You moved from Austin to Quebec City, and obviously your husband had a role in that. And you were also a new mother at this time, correct? I was. I had two boys. It started to be a pretty busy household with two babies and two careers at their very beginning. So I won't hide. That was really tough coming back from Austin to Quebec 
to not quite a tenure track position yet, but soon to be. And I came back to join my husband there, who was not too interested in a move to the south of the U.S. What I recall is that I'm still petrified thinking about my first three-hour lecture in French, for which I also had to prepare written materials for the students within the first six weeks of arriving at Université Laval, all whilst having two very young toddlers and a husband who was focused on starting his own career as a research scientist at the Federal Government Research Center in Quebec City. It was a really busy and challenging time, but luckily I could also transfer one of my research grants from the University of Texas in Austin. And that really got me started with my research program at Laval. And that was a really good thing. And it got me off to a really good start. You were at Laval. You had a job managing a research lab. And you were officially there for about eight years until 2002. But in August 1999, if I understand correctly, you took a three-year leave of absence to join Biochem Pharma in Montreal at the time, which was eventually purchased by Shire. What drew you to that company? This happened at a really interesting time. I'd just gotten tenure at Laval University. I had all the expected peer-reviewed grants from the Medical Research Council, which was the precursor of CIHR, also grants from the FRSQ and the Heart and Stroke Foundation, as well as the Laval Hospital Foundation. And I had several graduate students in the lab. My research really focused on pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenetics at a time when the pharma industry realized that drug metabolism played a huge role in the success and efficacy and safety. I became a key opinion leader for the private sector in that domain, and that really boasts me to the riches of laboratories and resources in the private sector. And in 1999, I had an opportunity to take a leave of absence from the university to lead and build the pharmacology capabilities at Biochem Pharma. That really attracted me. I have to say, I never looked back after that. And you were there for about four and a half years. You headed up the pharmacology department. And I'd like to do a deeper dive here because you were involved in co-founding a novel therapeutic for the hepatitis C virus, correct? That's correct. I would love to hear that story. Biochem Pharma was in the business of discovering small molecules. Biochem Pharma had discovered 3TC, that's still treatment for HIV. As the lead of the pharmacology department, I was working very closely with the chemists on novel therapeutics, and one of the areas was hepatitis C. We, through lots of synthetic chemistry and testing the properties of these chemicals, we pieced together a molecule that had really good efficacy in hepatitis C in vitro and in animal models. I was part of that discovery team and was part of the patent. I think it's one of my prides of my career to have been part of that and how motivating, how exciting it is when you're involved in that type of work. That must have been so exciting. I can't imagine. Biochem was eventually purchased by Shire, and unfortunately, the research team was shut down. But some of your colleagues created a new company, and you were thinking about joining them. But in August 2006, you joined Pfizer as Director of Research and Development and moved to Vancouver. Was that a tough choice? It was a very tough choice. 
one of the hardest experiences of my professional life was be part of shutting down Biochem Pharma and having to let go an incredible team of people. I cried a lot. It was just really, really hard. And colleagues really wanted me to join Biochem. They created around this hepatitis C drug and also other intellectual property that Biochem owned at the time. But I got recruited by Pfizer and they made a very interesting offer. And I thought that that would be a great learning experience because Biochem did some phase one trials, but would not have done the whole development of a drug. So I saw the opportunity to be part of a big pharma company to see the end to end, discover the pathway, make the molecule, develop the therapeutic, take it to market. And Pfizer offered me that opportunity. So I decided to join Pfizer in 2004, actually. I was first regional medical research specialist, really engaging with European leaders in specific areas. And then I was promoted to director of R&D and had the opportunity to lead R&D in Western Canada. And that's when we moved the family to Vancouver. You eventually became Pfizer's Canadian medical lead in vaccines, which brought you back to Montreal. Lots of movement in my life and my family. It was a very interesting time of bringing Prevnar to the market in Canada and being part of a large international team. The head of the vaccine team was in Argentina and in the U.S. So the team was Canada and Central and South America. I've never been part of a more fun team all these South Americans speaking Spanish, and I was on the verge of understanding their jokes. <laughs> I'm going to backtrack for a moment and go back to Vancouver, because when you were there, you pursued an executive MBA at the University of British Columbia, and that degree was focused on healthcare. And I'm wondering what drew you down that path? In my various roles at Pfizer, I had the opportunity to bring very diverse groups of people together to undertake projects together. And, you know, I'm talking about government, academia, some not-for-profit, some small companies, but also players in the healthcare system. I learned a lot from these interactions, but I also learned that there is so much I don't understand. And I've always had this drive to learn. And back then, I had just come back from spending a year with Pfizer Germany, being medical director, saw the European healthcare system and how the pharmaceutical industry engages. I just wanted to learn more about management, leadership, healthcare, engaging with unions, and all the things that one learns in an MBA. So it was a fantastic learning experience, and I'm forever grateful that Pfizer supported me in doing that. Was there a goal, either conscious or subconscious in your mind, about perhaps stepping further up the corporate ladder at that time? For sure. It's not only for that reason that I did that degree. There are other things at play to climb the corporate ladder, but certainly continuing to educate myself to grow in my career was definitely a very conscious goal. Hi, it's Jim Wilson here. If you're not aware, the NGB Ideas podcast and the next Great Big Ideas Summit have been created to raise awareness and financial support for McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. MCH provides critical pediatric care for families in need 
from Niagara Falls through Brantford, Hamilton, Guelph, Kitchener, Waterloo, and beyond. Many people who live in the city supported by McMaster Children's Hospital are not aware it is one of the top critical care pediatric centers in Canada. You do not have to live there to support this organization, but if you do live in the Niagara Peninsula, north to Waterloo region, we would especially appreciate you providing financial support for the life-saving work the team at MacKids does. For more information, please go to hamiltonhealthsciences.ca slash McMaster hyphen children's hyphen hospital. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. The pharmaceutical industry has been central to your career, and the industry has provided opportunities for growth and leadership. And I understand someone in particular at Pfizer played a significant role in helping shape your career path. Could you tell us about that person? This was our head of medical research, Dr. Bernard Pujan, a wonderful leader, very generous, very knowledgeable. He looked out for his team really provided me with lots of growth opportunities. And what I appreciated so much about Bernard is that he really understood different qualities and different personalities on his team. He understood that to keep me on the team, he needed to give me opportunities, and he did that. We had a wonderful relationship. I would have not had the growth I had at Pfizer without his support. It's wonderful when you have those opportunities presented and to be able to learn under mentors like that. I've had a similar experience in my sales career, and it's so important for the younger listeners who may be tuning into this podcast. I think the message there is be open to seeking advice and don't be shy about saying at times, I don't get it. Can you help me understand? If they're not willing to help you understand, probably not where you want to be. Absolutely. And it's a two-way street. One has to be proactive to seek out opportunities. They don't fall into your lap. But when you have individuals who are willing to be there for you, when you are looking for that advice, that's the best thing that can happen to you. So you were with Pfizer for just over nine years. And in September 2015, you accepted a position as Vice President Research Partnerships at NSERC. NSERC, for those who may not be aware, is the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. I'd appreciate you telling us a bit about that move. So I was actually at Pfizer for just over 13 years, and it was a wonderful time. This was just after I finished my EMBA. I had been heading up the vaccines team. I've always had this great fortune that voters have looked for me and my expertise. So I get this call about the opportunity to be the VP. And what I had realized at Pfizer is that I was hitting that glass ceiling and I was not going to be able out of Canada to, to rise to the vice president level. And here an opportunity presented itself. I accepted it, and it was a fantastic experience and a great fit for a couple of reasons. One was that the scope of responsibility at NSERC was industry-academic partnership, and that was really right up my alley. The other component was that it allowed me to look beyond health. What are other applications of science and chemistry in other areas and being able to engage with uh, extraordinary, very practical engineers on one side and the astrophysicists on the other end of the spectrum was just a really great experience and learning opportunity for me. 
and a very high profile opportunity. It was pretty high profile. You worked directly with government. Kirsty Duncan had just become our chief scientist who we worked very closely with and I had numerous opportunities to engage and also be challenged regarding the types of programs, the relevance of certain programs, the whole EDI component in the natural sciences, there's a dominance of men in many of those areas. I also had this incredible advisory committee where I saw really powerful, smart women leaders. Sophie Damour, who went on to become the president of Laval University in Quebec City, or Martha Crago, who went on to become the VPR and Innovation of McGill University. Those were women who were unapologetic about their knowledge and their capabilities and the role that they want to play in society. That was fantastic to work with them. In August 2018, you became president and CEO of Ontario Genomics. I would appreciate you providing some of the background narrative on that move. I'm suspecting you got another phone call from a headhunter. Indeed, that was the case. It happened fast. I had just been with NSERC for a couple of years. I really enjoyed working at NSERC. I had a fantastic team. For the first time, managed $350 million of research funding. It was an incredible experience. But I got this phone call, and here was an opportunity to, quote-unquote, run my own organization. So I accepted. Many people including me, consider Ontario Genomics as one of the key organizations and not only the Ontario Life Sciences Quarter, but also the Canadian Life Sciences community. It is a keystone organization. I would appreciate you taking a few moments to tell our listeners what exactly it's about. Why does Ontario Genomics exist? At Ontario Genomics, we are incredibly passionate about the power of genomics as the code for all life forms. And our knowledge and capability to analyze it and harness it really transforms our economies and our lives. And when I talk about genomics, I talk about DNA, RNA, protein, molecular biology, biological pathways, engineering these pathways, and developing tools to analyze exabytes of genomic data. Without investments in applied research and commercialization of genomics technologies, we would not have come up with a COVID PCR test in days or weeks and a COVID vaccine in weeks or months. And the beauty is it doesn't really end there. There are so many applications, whether we talk about resistance to pathogens, animal wellness, bioremediation, healthy forests, more sustainable production of foods and materials. There are so many applications of genomics and engineering biology that allow us to get away from petroleum and synthetic chemistry and therefore be more sustainable. At OG, we cover all those areas. We're incredibly passionate about the implications of this. But practically what we do is we develop public-public and public-private partnerships to bring together the right people at the right time to do big things together. I hope that we're seen as this critical pillar in the ecosystem because we have a fantastic ecosystem in Ontario and in Canada. And why would we not be leaders in Canada and in the world when it comes to genomics and engineer biology and biotechnology? So that's what we're all about at OG. 
Thank you for that. You're funded by the Ontario government and by Genome Canada, and you're part of what is called the Canadian Genomics Enterprise, which includes six like-minded and similarly named organizations across the country. There's one in the Atlantic provinces, another in Quebec, of course, you, and one in the prairies, a fourth in Alberta, and sixth in British Columbia. What is the relationship between or amongst these organizations? We collaborate in what we call the Genome Canada Enterprise, because at the end of the day, we have this common goal of bringing genomics to fruition. We work together on certain programs, but we also are independent and individual organizations. Each organization has a CEO. We all have boards of directors. We have provincial mandate that we have to answer to, and we have our individual strategic plans. While we work together, we also build on the tracks that we each have in our provinces. And as you can imagine, they're quite different and diverse, but there's clearly a common denominator between the organizations. And it's not only focused on the research end of things, but it's also focused very strongly on job creation. Very strongly on job creation and on company creation. Various genome centers have emphasis at different parts of that pathway to commercialization. But certainly at Ontario Genomics, we fund academics, we fund partner organizations, and we fund companies directly. Genome Canada helps fund Ontario Genomics, but it's not officially the corporate overseer, correct? It is not a corporate overseer. In fact, a minority of our operational funding comes from Genome Canada, but Genome Canada funds projects and programs that we help implement and for which we position Ontario teams and companies so that they can be successful. I should mention that we have this partnership with Genome Canada for project funding, but we also have partnerships with AFC, for example. AFC funds us to implement, develop a waste upcycling consortium, and we have a partnership with FedDef. FedDef funds a program that's called BioCreate that supports companies in genomics and engineering biology directly. Hi, it's Jim again. We'd like to take a moment to make a couple of small asks of our listeners. First, if you like what we're doing, we would greatly appreciate you giving us a quick review on whatever social platform you use to listen to our show. Secondly, we would also like to ask that you tell your friends about us. Please share a link or a tweet or post something about us on social with the hashtags NGBIdeas and NGBI. This podcast is on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at NGB Ideas, and I am on those platforms and TikTok at Lab Occupier. We appreciate you listening. Let's get back to the show. This is, in my mind, the next industrial revolution. There's a lot of newspaper articles these days about battery plants and, and the automotive industry, which is, has been the backbone for the Ontario economy for the last 100 years. But I would bet every dollar I have that the next 100 years is going to be focused on life sciences. I love hearing that, Jim. Thank you for saying that. I think the bio revolution is real. It is happening. 
the Biden administration and also Horizon Europe as examples are investing significantly. And I talked about billions of dollars in biotechnology, not only in life sciences as in health life sciences, but in life sciences across that includes foods and agriculture and materials, bioproduct at large. What baffles me sometimes is that everyone seems to understand that AI is impacting our economy and it's changing the economy and it's changing jobs. We think a lot less about biology and biotechnology and engineering biology, how that is really changing how we make product and food much more sustainable. And it is changing companies and jobs and the economy. To that end, if there was the CEO of an organization that is not currently in this sector who is listening, are there opportunities for corporate sponsorships or corporate funding with your organization? Absolutely. We have some corporate supporters of either projects or directly into our organization. I think that there's tremendous opportunity. Ontario has 24 universities. It has many more colleges, which is also a powerhouse and works with local industry. We have so much know-how in Ontario. It is absolutely a powerhouse. If we can nurture that powerhouse, I always like to say sky is the limit. For example, most recently, the Cultivated Bee, which is a new company out of Germany, has settled in Burlington, Ontario, to build exactly that cellular agriculture permutation capabilities. And they came here because of the work we do, the reports we've written on cellular agriculture. We've written this report that stipulates that in the longer term, cellular agriculture is a $12.5 billion opportunity for Canada. In the shorter term, a $7.5 billion opportunity, almost 90,000 jobs. And the Cultivated Bee has seen that and recognized that. So huge opportunity for corporate partners. But we have to do our homework too. We have to make it sticky for the corporate partners. And to make it sticky, we have to have the talent because if they can't find the workers, they can't stay here. That leads into a question I ask many of our guests. What is holding us back? I know that one of the pieces of the puzzle is a lack of wet lab space within which startups can grow. What problems do we need to solve so we can make that step forward? For me, there are three levels. One is companies need to have lab space. And right now we are solving the problem by spending time finding lab space for them and creating networks of incubators across Canada to find space for companies to go. Lab base is definitely an issue. Funding is an issue. We need to help companies get started. And oftentimes, Ontario Genomics, because of our expertise in the area, we recognize technology opportunities long before VCs are interested in these companies. So we bridge that gap. But funding is limited. And yes, funding is always limited, but we need to help the companies get off the ground and over that first valley of death so they can get venture capital funding. And then there's lots of talk about how there's much more venture capital funding south of the border than it is here. But in some areas like cellular agriculture, there are actually new venture capital funds emerging, and that's an opportunity. I think the third piece is the coordination of the ecosystem. 
we need to work together across the ecosystem so that we can leverage all of the infrastructure we have, all of the capabilities we have. There needs to be sharing and recognition that lines between sectors and knowledge areas are really merging. For example, take cellular agriculture. A part of cellular agriculture is about cultivating meat. That is about growing cells in petri dish and then in a fermenter. The knowledge and the entrepreneurs and scientists that go into this area are mostly trained in stem cell technology. And so we need to provide the opportunity of intersection between those disciplines. And that just requires a lot of collaboration. And I think we can really enhance that. Now, I have to say, Jim, I still consider myself after six years, a newcomer to Ontario. I worked a lot in Western Canada, in Eastern Canada, but OG really brought me to Ontario. And I've been experiencing a really tremendous ecosystem and tremendous leaders in that ecosystem. We're coming more and more together. So I've never been more hopeful that we can enhance the collaboration. But to me, that is a key part because what the companies are telling me is what attracts them to a certain place is funding, is lab space, but it's the buzz in the ecosystem. It's the mentorship, it's the legal support, it's the business support, it's all of that. And I think we have it all in the ecosystem. I agree 100%. Waterloo Region has a reputation for, on a global basis, for hitting far above its weight class. And the secret sauce in Waterloo is exactly what you just said. It's an expectation at every level in that region to help. It's in the DNA of the government, of the startup community, the great team at Communitech and Velocity and the Accelerator in Waterloo. I think it came from the farming community way back when, when somebody needed a barn raised, everybody dropped their tools, came over, and they helped. And that is in the DNA, that sense of cooperation, and it's the secret sauce that makes Waterloo the special place that it is. And it's the kind of cooperation, I agree 100%, that we need in our community to accomplish a shared goal. So you're the president and CEO, and you've got a team of about 25 people at Ontario Genomics. What's your typical day look like? I don't have a typical day. My days are a mix of internal and external meeting, lots of stakeholder engagement. I love sitting in conversations with project teams and with companies to hear the exciting new science and what the industry really needs, these kinds of conversations. There's finance stuff and things that CEOs deal with. But after six years, I'm really thinking about, I need to have typical days, but I don't have them. That'd take the fun out of it. So you grew up in Germany, you went to school in the U.S., you've worked and or lived in Quebec, Vancouver, Toronto, I think you worked in New York for a bit, and you've probably visited innumerable cities. You have physically moved homes more than a few times in your life, and two people I know who have experienced perhaps a similar path have told me that it changed them. One said it created a bit of a defense mechanism, and the other said it helped them become more outgoing. Do you think your moves have had a similar effect on you and or your family? I would say that the moves have made me who I am today. It has opened my eyes to different cultures, different languages. It's been so enriching that I think it has made me a much more complete person. 
And I'm quite proud of that. Part of that is learning the language. To me, the tipping point to sort of say like, yeah, now I'm really comfortable in that language is when I understand the jokes. <laughs> Good point. The jokes people tell tells you so much about the way people think and what amuses them. It's just enriched me as a person so much. I was always outgoing. I was always curious, but I feel it has made me a more understanding and more fulsome person. Thanks for that. Some great observations there. I know that some career doors open only for those who push, and sometimes they take unintended detours. Your career path has obviously not been linear, but your knowledge and experience seems ideally suited for the office you occupy. Where will you be and the organization be in three to five years? I really enjoy OG. What I enjoy about OG is the role that we can play in making Ontario a destination for the private sector and to grow a private sector, but also the opportunity to be a core contributor to making buy a product for Ontarians, for Canada and for the world. I see us continuing on that path. I hope that we will be equipped to invest in the right projects and the right companies to do what we need to do to solve the big challenges we have. Second, while about 50% or so of our projects are in life sciences as in health life sciences, we're really excited about cellular agriculture and biomaterials, synthetic biology, precision fermentation. So I see that area grow and we pursue different partnerships to support those areas. I want Ontario Genomics to be this proactive, opportunity-seeking organization throughout the entire fabric of OG, where we're all excited and passionate about making a difference in the world. And we have that team today. I hope to grow that team so that we can have more impact than we have today. I'd like to ask something that I'm completely unqualified to discuss, and you mentioned something earlier that I'd like to go back to it. I read recently that about 70% of leaders in Canada's pharmaceutical sector are now women, which is great, but that was not the case as recently as 10 years ago. And as evidenced by your mother's experience, science was not only unwelcoming to women, it just wasn't destination for women. For those young women who are about to graduate from university and maybe listening to this conversation, I'd appreciate your thoughts on what opportunities you see in this sector going forward for women. I see lots of opportunities. As I said earlier, I grew up and although my mom wasn't able to work as a chemist, it didn't really enter my consciousness and I was raised in a way that I never questioned whether I'm capable or qualified to learn about science. I do think that glass ceilings that were associated with gender, they have not completely disappeared, but they're definitely disappearing. To young women, I would say, don't question your abilities and capabilities and pursue your passion, follow your heart and do what you love doing because you'll be working for 30, 40 years and your job has to make you happy because you're spending a lot of time there. And this sector is exploding in such a cool way, and it's so welcoming. 
I'd like to go down another path just for a moment to discuss the term IDEA, which stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. And this is a term I discussed with a recent guest in this podcast, Ryan Wiley, who's the president of Shift Health in Toronto. Brilliant guy, wonderful guy. And why is IDEA so important to the future success of Canada's life sciences industry? IDEA is so important because without diverse and inclusive input, we are going to fall behind. Data shows that diverse boardrooms lead to more prosperous companies. I truly believe that is true. I want to hear from everybody because different experiences lead to different viewpoints. And these viewpoints are synergistic. So I think for that reason, it is important. Otherwise, we get stuck in where we were when my career started. Just to give a couple of examples that younger listeners might appreciate. As you see, I'm naturally curly. And for decades, I straightened my hair. Because curly hair used to be associated with less serious. When I showed up to work with straight hair, I got comments like, Oh, Bettina, now you belong into the boardroom. Seriously? Seriously. Wow. Of course, that comment came because I'm also a woman. Would a guy say that to a guy? I don't think so. That's just one example. Another example, yeah, I have a young team and parents with young children. When I joined the private sector, leadership team meetings would be in the evening, five to seven. Well, I had two little boys, daycare close at six. And I was paralyzed just to think about saying to my boss, my daycare closes at six, I'm going to have to leave. And one day, one of my colleagues, a young father, he just got up at six o'clock and says, guys, I got to leave. I have to take my son to a soccer game. And everybody was saying like, wow, we're at a great father. But if I had said that, nobody would have said, wow, what a dedicated mother. What people would have mingled about is, well, she's not really serious about her job. Maybe she doesn't belong into the boardroom. Those are examples that I had to manage, and I did manage, but it was very hard. And I don't want any young woman to have to deal with situations like that. And that's why idea is so important. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I mentioned I'm completely unqualified to discuss it, and it's going to take me a while to digest what you've just said. It's so foreign to me, and I'm embarrassed by that. We all make mistakes and not all of us learn from them. What do you think has been your best mistake and what misstep do you think has had the most positive outcome on your career? Jim, I've made so many mistakes. I don't even know where to begin. I'm going to use a very recent one and that is when I accepted the job to lead OD. I realized very shortly after starting that the organization was under a lot more financial duress than was apparent or presented to me. My first board meeting as an incoming CEO in my first CEO role, it was very tough. There were moments where I just thought, why in the world did I accept this job? It's been my best mistake because I just loved being the CEO of Ontario Genomics. And what kept me going was a team with infectious passion for what they were doing, an incredibly dedicated and engaged board of directors that had my back at every turn. 
And now we have turned the tide and OG is in a solid position. We get new funding from new partners. We lead initiatives like Canada's in bio. We do great things. We find ways to upcycle waste with industry and academics. I mean, we do so many incredible things and I have this incredible team. Today, I don't question, but there were moments when I did. Can you recall what the best career advice has been that comes to mind? Something that I think back to often is advice I got from my supervisor when I did my postdoc in Kentucky, because I was always discussing with him, should I go to industry? Should I go into academia? Should I pursue music? His advice was always, well, Bettina, whatever you do, you'll do well. But keep in mind that any job, any career choice you make, 10% is what you thought it was. And 90% is politics. And I think a lot about that. And I think that 90% politics, the networking, it's the teamworking, it's the unexpected things. But I think you had a point. That's very good advice. You're in a high pressure job. I know that you hike. What do you do to blow off steam? Is it put on your hiking boots and you go to the West Coast Trail or what do you do? When I have time to do that, yes, I do that. I'd say I jump on my bike and I ride down on Lakefront Trail and I go as far as I have time for and I come back and that's really good for me. I put on my headphones. I'm a podcast junkie. We all have a bucket list. May I ask what is on yours? My bucket list, number one, is travel. I want to travel to Southeast Asia. Got a taste of it. I love the area. There's so much to see. The other thing on my bucket list is spending more time in Europe. I have a son who lives in Paris. There are things I miss from daily life in a German city or in a French city. I want to spend more time with family and more time in Europe. Those are great goals. I have one last question. It's the question we end all of our interviews on, and it is this. What is the next great big idea on Bettina Hamlin's horizon? What I hope for is that Ontario and Canada can be the go-to places for innovative companies to build their companies and grow a green and sustainable economy. In order to do that, I think we need Ontario-based biotech super accelerator that is sticky for companies, big and small, that brings the ecosystem together so that we can leverage all our capabilities. And my dream is that Ontario Genomic has some role in making that happen and facilitating that along the many other colleagues in the ecosystem. That's a wonderful vision. Thank you for sharing it. And I hope that it happens sooner rather than later. And I look forward to an announcement saying, led by Ontario Genomics. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. I know that you're incredibly busy and I greatly appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. It was great fun. That was Bettina Hamelin, President and CEO of Ontario Genomics. To find out more about Bettina and the great team behind her, please go to ontariogenomics.ca. You can follow Bettina on social at ongenomicsceo, and you can follow her team at ontariogenomics. If you'd like to follow our team on social, we are at ngbideas, and you can follow me at labocupier. Thanks to Tisha Prasad for researching and editing this week's show. If you would like to contact me, 
My email is jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot com. We hope you like what we're doing, and we really appreciate you listening. Thanks so much for joining us.